From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Another peculiarity of pandemic life, the vaccine selfie. Today, why some people take them and post them and why others don't. I am totally in favor of vaccine selfies. I absolutely love them. I just couldn't put myself in a place where I'd hear negativity about it. It was just a moment of joy for me that I didn't want to put it out there and at risk hearing someone be negative about it. Then, whether or not race was an express motive, the Atlanta murders leave Asian Americans feeling targeted. I was heartbroken and I was entirely unsurprised. And the follow-up question of why I was entirely unsurprised is that I've been expecting this because of the way that the United States has responded to any threats against itself, either from people or nations of Asia. I'm Carol from Highlands Ranch. I'm an Evergreen member. Today is so stressful. And when I tune into CPR, either the news or the classical music, I just feel my soul renewed. You do offer a healing that you just don't realize the depth of. And I thank you for that. Thank you for your continued essential support for CPR. This doesn't happen without you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Vaccine selfies are all over social media these days. Photographs of people getting a COVID-19 shot. We learned that there are many reasons people post them and just as many reasons people don't. All of which we're going to explore right now. So I am totally in favor of vaccine selfies. I absolutely love them. Mason Jenkins of Glendale took a photo of himself, bespectacled and beaming, with his CDC vaccination card in hand. He obscured any information that identity thieves might glom onto. Like many folks we spoke with, Jenkins' chief motivation for posting a selfie was to encourage others to get vaccinated when the time comes. My family, who I love and adore, talk to my sisters and my mother every day. They still have vaccine hesitancy, and we've had other family members literally get COVID and have really serious side effects. And it was really important to me to show my family that I'm there's no microchip, <laughs> I'm totally safe, I'm fine, my arm isn't going to fall off. So it was important for me to show it for community confidence. My second reason was catharsis. COVID sucks. Um Finally posting a selfie where I, I kind of beat it in a manner of speaking, it felt so amazing to me. And the third one is kind of cheesy. I have my degree in history. I wanted to become a teacher at first, and I wanted to show my kids later down the road. Jenkins says he hasn't changed any minds yet about the vaccine, but Karen Robertson of Denver has. She teaches English to immigrants, mostly refugees, in Aurora, and she says some of her students are wary of the vaccine. So Robertson didn't just take a selfie. She live-streamed her shot so her class could watch. It was so great. And they were so worried about me. Teacher, teacher, are you okay? You know, they make you sit for 15 minutes, and I kept them on. And we, you know, I was teaching while I was waiting my 15 minutes. And they're just so earnest and concerned. And I think it really matters that they see that not only were we not afraid, but we wanted to take them and we were excited to have them. Encouraging communities of color who are underrepresented in vaccinations is what drove Christine Chen of Boulder. 
I think it helps to see different kinds of people getting vaccines and celebrating it and showing that it's a good thing and something that we should all want to do. Jen is Asian American. I don't know that I changed any minds, but I will say that a couple of friends of mine who happen to be people of color who saw my post on Facebook, they reached out to me and they said that they had been searching for appointments for some of their loved ones who were eligible and having some problems finding appointments. And so they asked for some advice on how I managed to get my appointment and I was able to help them out. And uh, now they have appointments. Meanwhile, Janet Park of Denver, who also identifies as Asian American, has decided she won't post a vaccine selfie when she gets her shot. She fears it would make her a target for racist comments and questions about her health. I think that there's definitely the opportunity for an extra uh, layer of questioning my validity of getting the vaccine. And I don't need to tell everyone that I have asthma. I don't need to tell everyone that I have high blood pressure or you know any other comorbidities that I might have. So yeah, I just kind of didn't want to open myself up to any of that. Well, now you've told us here, is that okay to air? Yeah, absolutely. But having your image with that, that's another layer. Yeah, absolutely. And I tend to um, keep my you know, full name off of Twitter for those reasons also. This idea of facing a barrage of questions, why is that person getting a shot? Did they cut in line? How do they qualify? What's wrong with them? Do they really work on the front lines? Well, that fear is something we heard a lot among people who are eschewing the vaccine selfie. Others just thought it was tacky and aren't prone to taking selfies anyhow. Or like Caitlin Turner of Canyon City, they feel that vaccines have become political and they're just not up for a fight. I just couldn't put myself in a place where I'd hear negativity about it. It was just a moment of joy for me that I didn't want to put it out there and have risk um, hearing someone be negative about it. And what sorts of negativity were you anticipating? Um, you know, a lot of folks in my area have complained about having to wear masks and are not people who are anxious to get a vaccine necessarily. Um, And so living in that community, I just wasn't sure what people would say, but I also just didn't want to have negativity around this real moment of relief and happiness. So what do health experts say about all this? Well, first off, a reminder to obscure any personal information on your Vax card. Or just take a picture of your band-aided arm or of the shot itself. Although needle-phobic folks told us they cringe at that sight. As for whether a selfie can cajole others into getting vaccinated, it's a mixed picture, says Jennifer Reich, sociology professor at CU Denver. She studies vaccine hesitancy wrote a book about it called Calling the Shots. And she says in the case of the COVID vaccines, it's important to note that the distribution is widely seen as uneven. And the way that plays out is that as people look at those photos, even if the person who posted it meant to say, like, look, I'm part of a solution, or I was really lucky and I'm excited to share my good fortunes, depending on who that person is and whether or not it seems like they should have been the first to get the vaccine or they should have had access early really shapes people's perceptions. And really, you only have to look at the comments under a photo as soon as people start asking, how did you get access to really understand that there's a lot of questions about what, who's getting access when, how people are getting access, whether they are exercising some kind of political connection or are perceived as jumping the line um, or cutting the line in front of people who might be more worthy or more needy of the vaccines to really see the way that this is much more complicated. 
Well, let's fact check the people who say, I'm posting it because I want to change behavior in my circles. Is there evidence that that works? There's definitely evidence that knowing somebody who's gotten a vaccine increases um, willingness to get a vaccine. At the same time, though, we run the risk of having photos posted by people who look young and healthy, who don't appear to meet a priority group. And that can have an uh, counterintuitively have a negative effect also in making people wonder if the vaccine is unfairly allocated and if that creates the risk of not just distrusting the vaccine, but perhaps the public health systems who are messaging about the vaccine. And I always worry as someone who's been studying vaccines for a long time, that the long-term outcomes of us undercutting trust in public institutions can carry far-reaching effects long beyond COVID. Fundamentally, it remains each person's choice whether to keep their vaccination private or telegraph it to the world. And, says one of the biggest vaccinators in the state, UC Health, there won't be pressure applied either way. So we're neither discouraging or encouraging people. This is Dr. Michelle Barron. Generally, the one thing is we ask people to be polite when they do it to make sure that people that are in the picture want to be in the picture. But everybody's been so excited about giving vaccines. I don't think this has been an issue. Vaccine selfies, yet another pandemic peculiarity. We'll be right back. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Evergreen members make ongoing monthly donations in support of CPR. If you're an Evergreen member and have recently received a new credit or debit card, please update your information on file. Updating your credit or debit card will ensure that your investment in the programs you love is current. Easier still, switch to giving directly from a bank account. Your ongoing commitment to supporting in-depth news and music on CPR makes an impact. Call member services to update your card information at 800-722-4449. Whether the murders in metro Atlanta get labeled a hate crime, they have increased fear among Asian people in this country. And I say increased because to hear 22-year-old Hannah Rose of Centennial tell it, she has faced years of inappropriate sexual advances and more recently anti-Asian sentiment related to the pandemic. Hannah is Vietnamese-American, and a note, her story contains some graphic descriptions that may not be suitable for all listeners. She told me about an encounter she had as a high school senior. I wasn't even 18 yet. I had someone in my class come up to me, and it was just the strangest interaction, and he just straight up said, will you take my Asian girl virginity? It, it just was shocking. I didn't know how to respond. I mean, I probably gave him a really weird look and I was just like, no. And then I just walked away. It was really, it was just so strange. But then I've also had been on the light rail. I used to take the light rail to go to school at UCD. And I've had older men approach me and be like, I used to know a woman from Nam, And I was like, oof, like, it's just disgusting. And it just It boggles my mind. Like, I just truly don't understand how people feel so empowered to think that it's okay to go up to someone and say something like that. Um, This person who said Nam, in other words, had an experience in Vietnam and was telling a young woman, a complete stranger, about his sexual history, essentially. 
it sounds like. And yes. I think the word that's been used to describe this is fetidization. Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. That definitely resonates with me. My friends, you know, they'll be like on Tinder, they're on Grindr, they're on all these online dating apps. And I am so hesitant to join it because I don't want to be a fetish. I do, I'm worried about attracting that. And it's just something that isn't comfortable for me. And I'm like, I'm just going to stay away from that completely. I have asked you some questions. I, I want to know what you'd like to convey about your own experience, your individual experience uh, in America right now, given what has happened in Atlanta and given the backdrop of that, which is that there has been an increase in anti-Asian violence and sentiment. Yeah, and I unfortunately have experienced it. About a year ago, it actually popped up in my time hop. I was talking about how the previous administration, it was literally almost literally a year ago to the date when Atlanta happened that the previous admin had started calling it the Chinese virus and the Kung flu. And as soon as I saw that come out in the media, it just made my heart sink because I know that there is that hate out there and it has been disguised to a point, but then when you have people in power who use that and make it okay, it increased. And I I just felt it in my heart. I was like, it's going to increase. The violence against Asians is going to increase. And then just a few weeks after that, I was at the grocery store. And this is a grocery store that I've been shopping at since I was a kid. I go there all the time. I'm very comfortable there. I know people there. It's right by my house. And I would just happen to be walking in, getting ready to grab a cart. And a man walked out and he, um, sorry, (laughs) I'm getting a little emotional. He spat at me and told me to take my virus back to China. And you always say like, well, if in this kind of situation, I would do this, I would say this, this is what would go down from, from like what you think you would do. But then you get in that situation and you're just so shocked. And that's exactly what happened to me. I just completely froze. I was like, oh my God, I was shaking. I was hurt. I didn't. I didn't know what to do. A very nice family came up, actually, and they uh, checked on me. And the mom, the daughter, and the son, they were like, are you okay? And they like kind of huddled around me while the father um, followed after the guy. And he's like, you don't do that to people. You don't do that to people. Which it it definitely made me feel better to see that someone understood that that wasn't okay. But it was just, it's just so shocking. And after that, I just, I didn't want to go out alone I'm adopted and I have a, I was adopted into a white family. I didn't want to go out without my mom. And I was 21, you know, and it's like, you know, well, you're 21. You should be able to go out to the grocery store alone and not be afraid of how it might go down. And even to this day, I still don't like to go out without her. It makes me nervous. I don't like to sneeze in public. I don't like to cough in public. I'm just worried about like people looking at me and like even now still going to the grocery store. Sometimes someone will look at me and they will just like give me a nasty look and I'm just standing there looking for pasta sauce. (laughs) Oh, the the coughing, the sneezing, the fears around that are that people would assume you are from a place where the virus might have originated. Is is that what I'm hearing? I that's I'm guessing what it 
what it is. It's just like uh, with that anti-Asian um, propaganda that was, I guess it's propaganda, you know, just like, oh, it's the Chinese virus. You oh. see an Asian person and you're like, oh, my God, they might have COVID or something. And it's just like it's hurtful. And it definitely happened more when I was alone. When I'm with my mom, I feel a little bit I feel a little bit more protected. And, you know, the family who came to my defense and made sure that I was okay, they were also minorities. And I think for me, I can't say for them, but at least in my head, I feel like, you know, you have that camaraderie when you feel like you are looked upon as lesser than. Um, And I think that just like kind of draws you together and it makes you form a bond. Even if you don't ever see each other again, you have that there. Hannah Rose of Centennial reflecting on her experiences being targeted and hypersexualized as an Asian American woman. We're going to get some perspective now from someone who does a lot of thinking about race, Asian American culture, and anti racist education. Ethnic studies professor at CU Boulder, Jennifer Ho, just listened to that conversation with Hannah Rose. Hi, Professor. Hi, happy to be here. What stands out to you from Hannah's story? I've been Hannah. I am Hannah. And so many of us share Hannah's emotional response, anger, and especially those of us who are Asian American women. I mean, everything that Hannah experienced, I experienced. Um, I was probably about 14 years old when I was propositioned for the first time by a white man who, um, an older white man who claimed to have um, had experiences with Asian women when he was overseas. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot in what she shared that uh, really personally resonates with me and makes me so angry. Professor, you just wrote an op-ed for CNN titled, To Be an Asian Woman in America. I'm gonna quote briefly from it, uh, of the Atlanta mass killings. The police say the shooter told them that this mass killing was not racially motivated. But it's clear that the people he targeted were Asian women. He allegedly went to places where he knew Asian women would be and shot them, end quote. Will you expound on that for us in the context of the conversation right now about whether this is to be labeled a hate crime? Yes. So first of all, I'm not a lawyer or a legal expert, but I think that people are assuming that hate crime means that it was racially motivated. And let me be really clear in saying, I believe it was racially motivated. The fact that we have to have a conversation somehow proving the racial motivation is, let's just say, confusing to me is one word I could use. But what is indisputably clear from the shooter's own testimony is that he was targeting women. So at the very least, we should all be in agreement that by targeting women, that should rise to the level of a hate crime. Um, And the fact that Asian women in mainstream media have been sexualized for well over a century contributes to this idea that Asian American women are expendable, where people who are doing sex work. I have no idea whether these women were sex workers or not. Because they are in the massage industry, they are assumed to be sex workers automatically, but 
as Hannah shared, and my own experiences bear this out, to occupy space as an Asian woman in America means that people assume that you are a sex worker, whether that is a formalized relationship with sex work or whether you are just an object of sex for men. A little later into the conversation, I'd like to get into the history that has led to that reality. But uh, when you and I spoke on the phone prior to this conversation on the radio, uh, you told me that of the Atlanta killings, you were heartbroken but entirely unsurprised. Will you expound on that for me? Yes. So I should say that all of the people I know who study the history of Asians in America are completely unsurprised and in fact have been expecting that there was going to be something that happened similar to what happened in Atlanta. And what I mean by that is there is a history of violence against Asians in America that is really not known. We don't study it in our K through 12 curriculum. We don't have it announced in public forums, in mainstream media outlets. It's not in films except for documentary films. So when COVID-19 hit, I, and there was a rise in anti-Asian racism and violence starting in February. And by the way, I too coughed in public and had a white woman move seats so that she didn't have to be near me in the early days in February. Um, I knew that there was going to be some type of mass shooting because this is America. There's a lot of guns. And this is the playbook of hate that Asian Americans have had to experience because of yellow peril rhetoric. Unpack that term for us briefly, yellow peril rhetoric. You, you see that as something that's occurring today, but that has a long history in this nation. Absolutely. So the yellow peril was a phrase developed in the early 20th century to describe the threat of Asian nations. And yellow peril rhetoric emerges anytime the United States is seen to be under threat by someone who's Asian or by an Asian nation. So during World War II, for example, after Pearl Harbor, the response of the U.S. government was to lock up 120,000 people of Japanese descent because they couldn't distinguish between who was loyal and who was an enemy. And there are documents during that time that show that various government officials, as well as the general public, thought that there was some kind of inherent gene within the Japanese population, whether or not they were born in America, that made them inherently um, untrustworthy and automatically loyal to Japan, like some kind of like genetic switch was going to go off and that they were going to be traitors to the United States. Of course, this is history that is in our own backyard, I think, of Camp Amache on Colorado's southeastern plains. And this is repeated with other groups of Asian Americans from different extractions. Absolutely. I would say most recently we've seen this after 9-11. The Sikh and South Asian and Muslim and Arab American communities to this day are receiving fatal anti-Asian racism. Um, I think a lot of people don't know about the Oak Creek massacre that happened. And if you don't know, please Google it. This is where a white gunman, male, entered into a place of worship and massacred women, elders, faith leaders, 
because he thought that they were terrorists. No. The, the Sikh community in particular in America has suffered greatly at the hands of anti-Asian racism. Let's pick up this discussion after a break. We are speaking with Professor Jennifer Hall. She teaches ethnic studies at CU Boulder. More of the history and we'll get into some solutions in the next half hour. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. It was kind of a normal day. We're gearing up for just the day and then there was a very loud explosion. The trauma of an overseas deployment can cause PTSD, which can lead to addiction. But recovery is possible. I'm grateful I did not give up. I would have missed all the joy that has come into my life after getting help. I would have missed it. One veteran's story on this week's episode of Back From Broken, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's return to my conversation with anti-racist educator and CU Boulder Ethnic Studies professor Jennifer Hull. We're speaking in light of the killings in metro Atlanta and against the backdrop of increased hate speech and violence towards Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And just before the break, the professor was talking about the 2012 Oak Creek shooting in Wisconsin. Uh, I want to note that most of those killed, Professor, in the Atlanta murder spree were women. And with that in mind, I want to cite a new national report called Stop Asian American Pacific Islander Hate. It looked at thousands of hate incidents between March 2020 uh, and February 2021. And Asian women reported more than twice as many hate incidents as men. What do you make of that? Again, it's not surprising because women bear the brunt of violence in American society and in global society. I think that if you are inclined to want to spew your harassment and violence against someone, I mean, this is what bullies do. You pick someone that you don't think is going to be able to fight back. And women are often perceived as being people who either cannot or will not fight back. Um, And if I can say something else, I think this is really important. Sure. I think a lot of times men assume that women are compliant, right? We're nice, we're kind, we are patient, we will listen to them. What's actually going on in many circumstances, certainly when I'm being approached by men, um, I'm nice and I'm kind and I'm polite, especially if I'm alone, because I'm afraid. Because I know that if I'm polite and kind and nice, I can extricate myself out of a situation I don't want to be in and hopefully not be harmed. And I think what this does is it creates this impression in a lot of men's minds that women are easy to approach, can be approached, should be approached, when the reality is there's a lot of women who are being nice because we're afraid. We've talked about some of the history that has led to the targeting of Asian Americans. And I also want to talk about media representations. Do you think that those play a role? I think they can. I mean, the popular culture and media images, certainly social media in the 21st century, shapes so much of our knowledge about who people are. So if your only idea of who Asian Americans are 
is coming from television, TikTok, social media, it can be very two-dimensional. And especially if, you know, the stereotypes are that Asian Americans are meek or mild or nerdy or targets to be made fun of, especially because of our quote unquote foreignness, then yes, I think that it definitely contributes. I know that you think specifically of war films of the mid to late 1980s as being culprits here. Definitely. So I think anyone who remembers that era of Platoon, Hamburger Hill, Full Metal Jacket knows that anytime you saw Asians on screen, it was as Vietnamese villagers. And so often those were women who were speaking supposedly Vietnamese, but in some cases it was just sort of like Asian gibberish that they needed in the background. Or if they were younger, they were invariably prostitutes. They were figured as prostitutes. And definitely in my um, teenhood, that contributed to the way that various men approached me and thought that they could approach me. I'd like to focus on solutions. So in the first half hour, Hannah Rose, the young Vietnamese-American woman we spoke with, recalls being spat on at her grocery store. A family witnessed this happen, rushed to support her. Uh, Apparently, they also castigated the man who spat, Um, which leads to a suggestion I know that you have uh, to take bystander training. Explain that. Absolutely. So there's a wonderful organization called Hollaback Bystander Training. Let me say for anyone who has the financial means to contribute, please do. Their trainings are free and they help people protect victims. So the idea behind their trainings is that it's not meant to address the attacker. It's meant to protect the person who's being harassed, which oftentimes Um, are women and other people who are in vulnerable and precarious situations. And so what the family did for Hannah, I'm so grateful. I'm so glad that this family came together, protected her, gave her some comfort and reassurance. And um, the fact that the, that the father felt like he could go after the attacker. um, That's not something that I think Hollaback would suggest, Mm. but I think that I'm sure that that gave her some sense of, having public condemnation, having having people say, this is not okay. I wish it was everyone who witnessed that stepping forward and coming to her rescue and letting that, that person know what he did was reprehensible. Another resource is an online anti-racism class that you're co-teaching through Coursera and CU Boulder. And for transparency's sake, I'll say that I'm taking this class myself, which is, uh, I think, free I I haven't been asked to pay yet, but I always want to remunerate where good work is being done. Um, And it can be done at your own pace. Um, Let's just dip in briefly. In this clip, you have just asked your co-teacher, an Africana Studies PhD candidate, Sean O'Neill, how he identifies racially. And then you have a follow-up. How did you figure this out, right? How did you learn that you were the race that you identify. And you can either kind of think about like in your earliest days, or if you want to kind of talk through now the way that you identify, either answer is great. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll go back to my earlier days. Uh, You know, uh, black families, families of Africana descent, uh, particularly in America, 
at least from my experience, have always discussed race. So race has been a discussion going on in my family as far back as I could remember, and as far back as I can actually dictate the speech of what my elders were saying to me. I think one of the first moments where I really, really realized uh, my my racial uh, positionality in this country, uh, I could have been more than six or seven, and uh, my mother and my grandmother sat me down to basically explain who I was and what that meant in the broader aspects of uh, American society. And what they told me was I was living in a country or in a society that was not designed for me. An excerpt of an online anti-racism class that you can take through CU Boulder uh, and a conversation that involves our guest ethnic studies professor Jennifer Ho. And it's against uh, the backdrop of that clip. I'd like to ask you, professor, speaking for yourself, how have you as an Asian American woman seen yourself in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement? I would say as an anti-racism educator and advocate, I stand 100% with the Black Lives Matter movement and have been saying this for a while, and I say that not to in any way self-aggrandize, but only to say that if you are going to be someone who chooses anti-racism, that means you are choosing to be for Black Lives Matter, and you're choosing to fight all forms of intersectional oppression. In just about the last minute, what do you want people to walk away from this moment learning or realizing? I want people to know that they can choose anti-racism, that my identity as an, I I don't have an identity as someone who's anti-racist. Anti-racist for me is an adjective that applies to the things that we choose to say and do in our value systems. So I am an anti-racism educator because I learned about the history of race and racism in the United States and chose to research this and teach on it and write about it and to be an advocate for anti-racism. Any of us can do this, but it is a choice. It's not the same as being not racist. Being not racist is you're being a decent human being. Choosing anti-racism means choosing to educate yourself about race and racism and then doing something about it. And it's a muscle. It's going to hurt. It's not going to feel natural. Mistakes will be made. But I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it to exercise your anti-racism muscle so that you can contribute to ending oppression. Jennifer Hall, Professor of Ethnic Studies at CU Boulder. We'll link to some of the anti-racist resources she mentioned later at CPR.org. And I'll also tweet them at CPR Warner. Voting technology companies are using billion-dollar defamation lawsuits to take on claims that they were involved in stealing the 2020 election, which is false. CPR's Benta Berkland explains that some see their legal fights as a new way to take on viral misinformation, a path that's starting to show results. The list of people being sued for defamation is like a who's who of Trump supporters. Former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, attorney Sidney Powell, MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell, and several pro-Trump media outlets from Newsmax to OAN. This goes beyond hoping to stop the disinformation. The goal is to hold people accountable 
That's attorney Steve Scarnulis. He represents an employee of Denver-based Dominion Voting Systems who's still living in hiding after being threatened and falsely accused of helping steal the election for President Joe Biden. His client, Eric Coomer, filed the first defamation lawsuit. Scarnulis hopes it will help Coomer clear his name and return to a normal life. I hope that it will shock media and other personality who who have the the platforms they do enough that they will be much more cautious about spreading disinformation. Dominion and another election company, Smartmatic, have also filed defamation lawsuits against Trump's attorneys and conservative media outlets, with more likely to come. Bill Adair runs the journalism program at Duke University. I think this is a completely new way of tackling misinformation. As a journalist, I am I'm a little bit nervous. The idea of using defamation lawsuits makes us a little bit concerned. He doesn't want it to be used against journalists just for doing their jobs. Adair founded the fact-checking website PolitiFact, which takes a different approach to combating misinformation. And Adair says, despite his concerns, he's come to believe defamation lawsuits do have a role to play. We need to incentivize truth and we need to de-incentivize lying. Money is what matters to a media company. A defamation lawsuit is a big way to do that. It appears to be having an effect. An anchor for Newsmax walked out on a live interview with MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell when he started making false claims about Dominion voting machines. Okay, uh, Mike, can I ask our producers, can we uh, get out of here, please? Uh, I I don't want to have to keep going over this. We at Newsmax have not been able to verify any of those allegations. Defamation lawsuits do have downsides. They're difficult to prove. You need to show someone knew a statement was false when they made it or had serious doubts about its truthfulness. George Freeman spent three decades defending people against defamation lawsuits when he was the in-house counsel for The New York Times. He now heads the Media Law Resource Center. He says media organizations have a First Amendment right to report the news and repeat what important people say, even if it may be untrue. But he says the pro-Trump outlets may have crossed a legal line by appearing to endorse obvious falsehoods. You know, it's been depressing to me because I've kind of campaigned that that privilege be accepted. And now they're trying to use it. But in a case where the speakers are irresponsible and the networks are not reporting them neutrally, but they're endorsing them. Still, Freeman thinks the strongest defamation cases aren't against the media outlets, but against one of the people they gave a lot of airtime to, Rudy Giuliani. Because he made certain accusations on TV But then he didn't make those in court because I think he knew he would be subject to discipline and and perjury if he made them in official documents. So that would seem to be pretty good evidence 
that he knew they were false. Yet there are reasons defamation cases aren't a main tool in the fight against falsehoods. Many conspiracy theories don't target a specific person or company, so there's no one to launch a lawsuit. And they can take years. So it's likely these lawsuits about the 2020 election will still be grinding along when the next presidential election begins. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Colorado Springs and Aurora are the state's largest cities after Denver, and they expect to grow a lot more, even as climate change dries up water supplies. So the cities want to build a new dam to take water from the western slope over to the Front Range. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. South of Minturn in Eagle County, the road that runs along Homestate Creek is still closed for the winter. So Jerry Mallett swings his leg over the locked gate and starts walking, about a mile in. We're right below where the proposed Whitney Creek Dam would be. If we walk up another 150, 200 yards, we'd be under 250, 300 feet of water. This dam would create a reservoir for Aurora and Colorado Springs, but those cities are more than 130 miles away from here, a wetland with streams and fox tracks in the snow. A dam and a series of pipelines would traverse the mountains to get this water to the Front Range. Colorado Springs and Aurora got the water right in 1952. We just don't think this is the place to take it. There are options downstream. Mallet is the founder of Colorado Headwaters, a group that works to restore and protect areas like this one. And he's fought Aurora and Colorado Springs before. After these cities teamed up and built Homestake Reservoir in the 1960s, they tried to build another one. That project was shut down in the 90s. We're not saying you shouldn't grow or you've got to control the population. That's your issue. Ours is protecting the natural resources for other values. Aurora and Colorado Springs are working together because they have the same problem. They don't believe they have enough water where they are to support their plans for growth. If the cities get their way and dam up Homestake Creek, that would reduce the amount of water that ends up in the Colorado River, which the Front Range and some 40 million people have come to rely on over the decades. When the water projects were coming online in the 50s, 60s, early 70s, we considered the West Slope a third world country. We could mine their resources. Mallet says that's changed. West Slope communities say water is key to keeping their economies alive and now fight for it to stay. Democratic State Senator Carrie Donovan represents seven counties that include communities like Aspen and Crested Butte. In her letter in opposition to the project, Donovan wrote that she can't express how sternly the people in her district oppose water diversion projects to the Front Range. The West Slope is not in a position, I think, today where they're going to roll over and say, fine, we'll lose that water. I think they've got the political clout now. that It's a new game. If Colorado Springs and Aurora secure permits to build the Whitney Reservoir, it would be the first big trans-mountain water diversion project in decades. Environmentalists are concerned about losing these wetlands, which are threatened by climate change. Ecologist Delia Malone says most animals rely on wetlands. It's already naturally rare, and due to development, we've lost even more, further increasing the rarity of that habitat and the essential nature to wildlife. The Colorado River's flow is down about 20 percent since 2000. Half of that is due to human-caused climate change, and the river's flow is projected to drop more. Some see that as an argument to keep water in the river. For Aurora and Colorado Springs, climate change makes a reservoir even more important and would support the cities during a drought. In the 21st century, new water projects have additional hurdles to deal with. That's Brad Udall, senior water and climate research scientist at Colorado State University. 
he understands and appreciates the mission of front-range water utilities to supply reliable water to their growing populations. But he says this new reservoir could face challenges with climate change. It's potential reductions in water for those projects. It's decreases in water quality. And then you also have this whole issue around equity of new development impacting older water projects in Colorado that are already built. Colorado has to send a certain amount of water downstream to places like California because of a century-old agreement. But as the Colorado River dries with climate change and more demand is put on the river. There's a higher risk of what's called a compact call. The lower basin states say, hey, you're taking too much water. If that happens, newer Colorado water projects could have to cut their usage to send enough water downstream. That would include this new reservoir. Udall says the best available science is needed to answer the question, is this water better left in the river or sent to Aurora and Colorado Springs? The science really does need to be heard here, and it's somewhat disturbing and is very different from the science that we used in the 20th century to assess the value and benefits of these kinds of projects. Colorado Springs and Aurora declined CPR's interview requests. Before the cities can move towards building the reservoir, the U.S. Forest Service has to sign off on structural testing and surveying. That decision is expected later this month. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. A unique piece of land in Colorado's most remote county will be preserved for the public. We first talked about this island escape in December when Hinsdale County was raising money to buy an archipelago from a private owner. That purchase is now official, and the county's working on next steps. Back in December, I spoke with Christy Borchers, a Hinsdale County commissioner, about the project. I honestly never thought I'd be talking about an archipelago in Colorado, but here we are. Uh, This is 10 acres or so of land, including a peninsula that juts into Colorado's second largest lake, Lake San Cristobal, and connects to two islands by a suspension footbridge. Gosh, it sounds like the stuff of childhood dreams, doesn't it? It's a spectacular spot, loved by generations of people who visit. The islands abut the peninsula, which is right next to the county boat dock. And so from the end of the largest island, you stand there and look upwards towards the headwaters of the Lake Fork of the Gunnison. And it's just a spectacularly magical place. I think of my time in Lake City, and you just feel so very close to the mountains. I mean, of course, you're in the mountains, but peaks jut above you. Yeah, we found during our 2019 avalanche season that we have very steep land in Hinsdale County. Mm -hmm. So we're just a teeny little spot nestled in spectacular mountains. And that's true as well of Lake San Cristobal, uh, where Lake City gets its name. That lake is just over two miles long, formed by damming a river, but not a man-made dam. How, How did this lake even come to be? So as far as we can tell, the Slumgullion earth flow, that's a hard word for me to say, Slumgullion <laughs> earth flow, came down about 700 years ago and dammed that uh, lake fork of the Gunnison. The term Slumgullion is the name of a stew that the miners would make. It's got a distinct orangish 
chalky color, which is exactly what the rock looks like. And the earth flow actually continues to move just a little bit, but it's a, a dominant geographical feature in our landscape. Are these islands, like, are they wooded? So the islands themselves, there are not a lot of trees at all. They're sort of more high alpine, some beautiful little cactus grow on the largest island, geese nest. The peninsula itself has some trees on it, but it's a bit of a kind of a high alpine meadow-like location. Because the Slumgullion earth flow dammed the river, it's basically, if you can imagine the lake not being there, you would see that this is like many of our very steep valleys. All right. Well, that's a picture of this rather magical place. What is the history of the archipelago? Like, how did it come to have a fancy footbridge posted, I think, with a no trespassing sign? The peninsula itself is called the Morningside Lode Mining Claim. This particular spot was one of the very many, many, many identified mining claims. It's a way that our county was settled by miners who were coming here to look for gold. Uh, And then, of course, the shopkeepers who came to mine the miners. So this particular (laughs) piece of property was not conveyed by the BLM. It was always in private hands. We know that the family of Richard King in the 50s was sort of eyeing this spectacular property and imagining having to squint his eyes a little bit, a a big ski area coming down from Penniston Park adjacent to the lake. So, you know, there were big dreams for quite a while about some real high-class recreation. Fortunately for us in Lake City, those dreams were not realized. And instead, our recreation takes on a bit more of a low-key experience for visitors. We've definitely been evolving as a community to really embrace the outdoor recreation assets that we have, four wildernesses, two wilderness study areas, the headwaters of the Rio Grande. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Hinsdale County Commissioner Christy Borchers speaking with me in December about an archipelago park on Lake San Cristobal. The county has since bought the land from the owner who lives in Texas, thanks to fundraising, as well as grants from the Trust for Public Land and Great Outdoors Colorado. Finally today, we'd all love to swap our snow shovels for garden spades. Spring is about to spring, and so is our seasonal gardening segment. Send us your questions about all things flora, and we'll get answers from Fatima Ahmad of Frontline Farms. Our email address is coloradomatters at cpr.org. That's coloradomatters at cpr.org for your gardening questions. And thanks to the team that keeps this garden thriving. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, killing every single houseplant I've ever owned. This is CPR News and KRCC.